0: Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined as always by Sarah Bae Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I'm well, Panel. How are you?
0: Good, good. Is it running weather out there yet?
1: It is always running weather, Panel but it's been a little <laughs> bit rainy, windy, raining, uh, running weather lately, so.
0: I, I'm inspired by your attitude that it's never too cold. Oh,
1: to any, anything above zero, you should be running outside, in my opinion.
0: Well, I'm, I'm going to remember that next time it gets below zero here in St. Louis. And I'm also joined by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And yourself? Doing great. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do want to know about how you got on the guest list to the Hamilton performance at the White House, though I understand, sadly, you were not actually able to go, is that true? That is true, there were there were two magical hours
2: in which I was on the guest list uh, for the White House performance of Hamilton, and at the last minute, the White House decided that they wanted to limit it to East Coasters, and I received a, an email saying, uh, that phone call is not coming. The invite is no longer in your hands. <laughs> so that's what happened. But it was great. it was a great two hours. There was two hours where I imagined that I'd be singing along, you know, with Hamilton and hanging out with Barack. But instead, I watched it on YouTube and I cried. So sad. Sad. I would cry too. So I
0: feel. I think I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I would have been so envious to to have that to have that magic ticket taken away from me. Yes. How sad. I was like, um, but the like anti wonka That's terrible. I had the golden ticket in my hands for a moment, and then it went away. The Anti-Wonka. It's character building. Well, we will get into uh, talking about Hamlet. Uh, Did I say Hamlet? Um, We'll get into talking about Hamilton in our third segment. You can take
1: the early modernist out of the period, (laughs) but you can't take the period out of the early modernist.
0: (laughs) That's right. Oh, and, and I would so much rather talk about Hamilton than Hamlet, too. It's It's ironic. Um, So today on the podcast, we will be talking about, first of all, Diana Taylor and Marcos Stuart Nagel's What is Performance Studies uh, publication project, a really interesting and exciting new publication, a collaboration between Duke University Press and Scalar and Hemispherica. Um, We will talk about what this publication does and what it may uh, suggest about the future of academic publishing. We will talk about the issue of practice training in Ph.D. programs some PhD programs in the field institute practice training, having PhD students create performances. Some uh, do not institute training and some discourage it. We'll talk about the, um, the, the stakes of that debate. And finally, the honeymoon is over, or is it? Academic criticism of, of Hamilton, the smash transformative Broadway musical, has begun to emerge. We will talk about uh, scholarly critiques of this extremely popular musical. Before we get to those topics, though, the news roundup. Um, A few interesting things that have come up since the last time we recorded, the Ellen Stewart Theatre for Social Change Award was announced in February and went to Bernardo Ray and Nube Sandoval, who have directed the Theatrical Laboratory of Psychosocial Rehabilitation with Refugee Victims of Torture in Rome. I think they're not just based in Rome, but they've worked in Colombia and they've worked internationally. UW, University of Washington, has won a 750,000 Mellon grant for an initiative to explore performing arts research. This is a really interesting project. I, I spoke to Scott Magelson to get a little bit more information on what this is, and they're in the planning phases of implementing this, but the grant essentially allows them to bring in artists and artist scholars for three years, and the object of this is to demonstrate the the value of performing arts as a research activity Um, but apparently the people that they want to bring in they'll work closely with their BA students with their MFA students and their PhD students and it should be a really interesting project to watch. Um, uh, Sarah has reminded me that both Aster and PSI will be getting new websites soon. Do we know anything about when those are going to be launched?
1: My understanding is that the Aster website will launch Sometime in the next uh, month or so, so I would say like six to eight weeks, rough timetable. Uh, the PSI site is a little more DIY, so it's it's. I've been involved with that effort for a while now. It's it's coming along. It'll hopefully officially roll out by the PSI conference in midsummer.
0: That's great. And the last thing that we wanted to talk about, we wanted to acknowledge the retirement. Of Eleanor Fuchs, and again, this is not a this is not breaking news. Uh, she retired from teaching at the end of last year, but this is a major figure in the field. Her book on the death of character really articulated in beautiful fashion and, you know, probing and rich and and complex fashion. A lot of the issues that we think of as being the intersection of theater and postmodernism, and I know that I'm not the only one who finds her article, Visit to a Small Planet, to be an incredible teaching tool to lead undergraduate students especially into how they encounter a play. So we wanted to just remark that she has she has retired I don't know I don't believe that I've met Eleanor Fuchs I don't know if you guys have any first-person encounters with her
1: well I I've chatted with her a few times and always found her to be an incredibly warm generous uh, person to talk to Uh, I think one of her real marks in the field other than her significant scholarship of course is also the numerous students that she has mentored and guided who have themselves become major figures in the field and I think what I know from them of her role as a mentor and teacher really speaks to a profound and important legacy that I think probably can't be overestimated so um, congratulations to her and she's been at Yale uh, I was just looking from 19 since 1987 and she just retired in, in 2015 so uh, as well as that wonderful memoir uh, that she wrote um, about her mother. So uh, the gifts have been many and are still being enjoyed throughout the discourse. and so i I hope she has many wonderful years in retirement.
2: And I'm curious to know what she's what she's gonna do next. like now that uh, the schedule's a little bit lighter, right? Um, you know what is the next? activity, what's the next publication, what's the next uh, conference presentation that Eleanor Fix will give, you know, so I'm looking forward to seeing the many things that she will create into the future.
1: I wonder Indeed. I wonder if she'll write another play. I'd really love to see, I'd love to see her do another play. She had that documentary play, uh, Year One of the Empire, uh, and I don't know, maybe she'll do something more like that. I think that would be great. Eleanor, if you're out there, give us a play.
0: So our first topic is Diana Taylor and Marcos Stuart Nagel's What is Performance Studies book. This is a unique publishing project that is put out by the hemispherica by Duke University Press by scalar there's a lot going on here that's really interesting in terms of uh, an attempt to define the field of performance studies and an attempt to navigate the changing conditions of academic publishing um, Sarah can you tell us a bit more about what this is
1: sure so in order to understand a little bit of what the What Is Performance online digital book is doing, it's helpful to back up a little bit to understand the platform that it appears on. And it appears on Scalar, which is scala edu, um, And this was started by Tara McPherson at uh, University of S- uh, Southern California um, through the Alliance for Networking Visual Culture. And it's basically a, a, a platform in which scholars can create works that use the advantages of digital media in service to scholarly projects, but do not necessarily require a lot of uh, in-depth coding. And so what it allows people to do is to create uh, websites and online projects. Um, Deb Levine at um, NYU Abu Dhabi has been using this platform very productively with her students and lots of people have been creating new book projects and many times the, the Scalar site uh, sort of operates as a kind of corollary to the, to the print book. In this instance, and this is a project that, that the folks at, at HEMI have been working on for a while and Diana Taylor has been steadily collecting, is a, a series of short essays kind of introducing some of the main topics. But the bulk of it is really a, a series of interviews. And if you go to the main website, what you will go to is you'll find the What is Performance Studies um, book site. And then if you click on the interview tab at the at the top, that takes you to a page of online interviews with various prominent um, and representative scholars uh, working in various dimensions of performance studies, talking um, uh, and answering questions uh, from Diana about... Uh, about their work and about the field and what's interesting is to listen to these kind of in a in a matrix against each other so the ways in which individual people are defining it at different times how they're responding to previous comments that have come before that's a really a, a, an interesting kind of format in that it really maps out and it's been going on for quite some time i think one of the earliest interviews that they have is with Perhaps not surprisingly, Richard Schechner from 2001. But I noticed that one of the more recent is Laura Levin of York University, and she her interview appears from from 2013. So it it gives you a a really interesting kind of overview of the conversations that are happening, and it builds on one of the advantages of of online digital media, which is that this is of course expandable and revisable. So new people can be added. Um, these can be put into conversation with each other in interesting ways. It's a it's a really useful project that I can imagine folks using in their classes.
0: I, I wondered if it would ever emerge in downloadable format, but if, if it's meant to be updated and added to... It's not something that you would download and have on your tablet, right? And there's not a paper version of this necessarily that's planned. I guess the question... I don't know. I guess the question is... it it refers to itself as a book, but it really is hosted on the web and it really is a website. So I think the advantages of that are clear and they're talked about in the introduction. It's transmissible. It's, you know, there's something about the website that can cross national boundaries in a way that a paper book in, in a single language cannot. But it also would suggest that it needs to be updated. Links that become broken need to be fixed. And one of the larger questions that this brings into it is if you're, you know, a junior faculty member or just a faculty member, and this is you're publishing on this website, our review committee is going to count it as a certain type of research. This is a broader question about e-publications, I suppose.
1: Well, two things, and, and then I can, I'd be curious what Harvey's, how Harvey sort of makes of this as well. One is that I think it's important to recognize that we're all moving away from downloadable content, right? So everything is going to be cloud based, and it's not so much what you have in your possession or what's on your device, it's what your device connects you to. And this has, has a lot of implications for publishing because, of course, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain and update things that are dynamic, but it also introduces uh, sustainability issues in terms of, as you mentioned, link rot and, and things becoming robust. Scalar has been around for a while now and, uh, and is, I think, institutionalized enough and has enough infrastructure. It's been supported by Mellon uh, Foundation, among others, um, that I think it, it really presents a very robust platform. And, and indeed, you see a lot of other presses looking to move towards similar kinds of online publications. The question of junior uh, and untenured scholars and even alternative dissertations and how those emerge and what those count for, I think that's a very real conversation uh, that is ongoing but probably will uh, increase in intensity over the next few few years. Um, I was recently able to serve as an external evaluator on an entirely digital dis- uh, dissertation um, a website was built, no, there was plenty of written content within the website, um, but there was no print publication, there was no paper output. Um, and I thought this was really quite marvelous in, in lots of ways, but uh, this was at the National University of Singapore. But one of the questions that, that the committee had and that the university had is, you know, how do they, how do they justify this um, as equivalent to, you know, something more akin to a monograph? And you know I think for for anyone who knows me, my uh, ideology and my position in this question is probably fairly transparent uh and evident um, but in case it's not, I'll just say that I am very much in favor of alternative forms of publishing, and I think in fact, they are what is going to sustain and enrich the future of our field, um, which is not to say that print is dead or that you know the scholarly monograph needs to go away but uh, I'd like to see more recognition of these alternative forms uh, as equally rigorous, uh, inventive, creative, and in many ways much better suited to our objects of study as dynamic, time-based works than the print monograph.
0: harvey, what did you what did you think about this publication? I think it's great. Uh, what I like about
2: what Diana's done with Hemi is to really take in some ways the lead uh, in an international way uh, at sort of distributing uh, and engaging performance scholars all over the place so if you think of uh the e E-Hemi, um e uh sort of website also the journal i mean the journal by itself succeeded in really j- legitimizing e-publishing right and to the point where to publish in 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 that journal uh is equivalent in many ways to publishing in a print-based journal like TDR or Theater Survey or Theater Journal, among others. And I think that this is similar to the next step, right, where uh, Diana mentions in the introduction uh, the necessity and the importance of having these interviews and these shorter articles that can circulate broadly and widely without being uh, constrained and, and delimited by the limitations of print-based publishing. You know, so I think that this is a good step. Uh, in terms of content, a lot of the content has been available through the HEMI website previously, you know, through YouTube uh, and other outlets. Uh, so in some ways, it exists as a sort of a time capsule
0: of different ways of thinking about performance studies at different moments in time. Uh, and that's helpful. I was interested also in the the, the, the way it answers this question, right? I mean, there's the, there's the media of the publication and the really interesting implications that come along with that. Um, as a side note, Sarah, I completely agree with you. I think that the, the, the salient issue should be peer review, right? If you contribute to something and it's peer reviewed and it's an article, then it shouldn't matter, you know, precisely the format in which it appears. The problem will be the conservatism of review committees and the lag time that it takes for them to understand how to compare these things to other things. And in a way, perhaps for now, this will be a kind of luxury that senior you know, people have to contribute to something like this and not worry about whether or not it will be counted. Um, But I was interested in both of your reactions to, you know, how, how, what kind of job it does answering that question. Because we get this question from, you know, students, undergraduates, you know, graduate students, especially from outside of the field who come into our seminars and they want to know what we're doing and <laughs> why performance studies exists it's not an easy question to answer we get it around the you know the thanksgiving dinner table as well i think it's a rich answer to the question but i'm curious to know what you guys thought of in terms of how it represents the field overall
1: well i think like any collection you know it's representative not comprehensive so i think it's and the the attitude that a lot of its scholars take in these interviews is to drill down into areas of their own specialization. And I think that that's helpful. And, and in some ways, I think what, what, the, what the site does and what the project does is to sort of answer the question by mosaic. Um, the one thing I, I would want as a next iteration or to think, uh, if they're thinking about the future, is I was struck by, by the lack of interactivity and by the and the the lack of an ability to for a reader or someone to talk back to this, to this site to this question. So I'm curious at the decision not to have like an open comments section or not to have a, a space where someone could write you know their answer to this.
2: Well, I think that um, definitely it needs to, there needs to be a mechanism to make it more interactive, um, less closed. As Sarah was saying, I, I also think that there could be value in periodic updates, right? Because a number of the interviews are located in particular moments in time, 2001, 2002, 2007, a lot are from 2007. And, you know, maybe this might be the moment to have like a seven up performance studies, right, where every seven years, you check in with people to see, you know, how their thinking has evolved. And there's a way in which when given the opportunity like Tavia had in his uh, essay, he can uh, comment upon uh, upon reflection not only who he was and what he was saying at that moment in 2007, but also what his thinking has become and how it's evolved uh, in the eight years, or in the nine years since. So I think there's value in checking in every so often with these individuals.
1: I agree. I think checking in with people uh, would be great. I also would readily welcome uh, new voices uh, of scholars who have sort of emerged in the, you know, almost 10 years since, or more than 10 years since these questions were asked. Um, But I am struck, if you just kind of look, and I've just clicked on it now, if you sort of look at that page, you'll note how many have the same or similar background, right? Which I can, I I believe is, is Diana Taylor's office. And so I I also am really struck by if we are moving into new spaces of, uh, of publishing, you know, one, and as well as teaching, right? Sort of like the MOOC and the online teaching. One of the things that occurs to me is that we're all going to need to get a lot more familiar with the aesthetics of on camera presentation and (laughs) what environment says and how we construct, right? Not just, and it's, it's really interesting how much these, like even just these little thumbnails participate in a kind of, you know, sport jacketed book background, right? I mean, so, so the, you know, we can talk about this as being an incredibly innovative, forward-thinking progressive and, and uh, online digital cutting-edge project, and it is, and at the same time how much it recycles very familiar notions of what it is to be in the academy and to be a professor per se.
0: Yeah. Our next topic is uh, practice training in PhD programs in theater and performance studies. Uh, As long as I have been aware of there being PhD programs, there have been different approaches to the question of how and to what extent theater and performance scholars should be making performance in the course of their training. Some programs have a series of classes that students take. A lot of programs leave their policies on this question unstated. Harvey, what do we suppose are the rationales for either instituting practice training for PhD students or discouraging it? My inclination is that for every graduate program
2: there is a founder or a set of founders with their very clear and distinct ideas of what phd training should be Uh, and in terms of looking at the curriculum you know how much or how little practical experience should be included in that uh, training right in addition there's also the question of uh, how long it should take a person to get a degree right should it be two years of coursework three years of coursework and often i think that that plays a role in terms of the expectations related to uh, practical expecta- uh, uh, classes and coursework. Uh, so what you get is you get a range of, of um, uh, offerings within graduate programs, right? So for example, at Stanford, you have seminars that are in the area of theater history, performance studies, performance theory, uh, and then you also have the requirement to take for workshops uh, in directing, right? And I'm unclear uh, how the workshops and the seminars differ, right? Because there's a a different terminology on the website. Uh, I know, for example, at Tufts, uh, Tufts is a place where practice is integral to the program uh, and that PhD students are expected to uh, learn the process and um, perspectives on directing as well as dramaturgy. Uh, And at Northwestern, which is my program, uh, we are, Somewhat flexible in that uh, we don't require students to uh, take classes in practice in directing or dramaturgy, uh, but we make them available if students are interested in those um, areas. Uh, So that becomes a question, right? And that I want to open up to both you and Sarah. You know, what do you think a PhD program should offer um, in this moment in the year 2016?
1: Well, I'll, I'll jump in here and just say that I think one of the answers to that has to be yes, uh, in that I don't necessarily think we want every PhD program to do the same thing. And uh, very often when we start talking about PhD education, I, 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 I worry that we start becoming you know monolithic about what it is, I think each program has different strengths and obviously different people and and different ideas. Um, I came through a program uh, at the University of Michigan in the late nineties that had um, through a variety of circumstances somewhat intended somewhat unintended a very robust studio practice that was integral to our coursework so one of our mm. main courses every semester was a studio practice based course and for one semester, uh, the person who was supposed to be teaching that uh, left. And so they just brought in all of these amazing people who gave these like master classes for a, a, a semester. And it was an unbelievable experience uh, for me, both in terms of exposure uh, to new ideas and, and context and actually meeting and working with people, as well as having you know, my work looked at. So when we were forming a program at the University of Buffalo uh, a number of years later, I really, that was a big, that was really important to me. Um, I think one of the other things that we have to consider is uh, the relationship between doctoral education and undergraduate education. And there's this kind of weird bell curve, right? Where you get lots of people become theater majors. like very few people are doing performance studies in high school, right? Um, So people come in as theater majors and acting is generally the gateway drug. And then we start, try to kind of stretch them into, you know, history theory, and then some of them go on into these PhD. programs, where all of a sudden the practice, the thing that drew many of us there for the beginning, kind of drops out of the bottom and they kind of live in this rarefied space and then they go on the job market and all of a sudden they're like trying to like figure out how to like you know do acting again because most of the jobs are talking to the undergraduates those very same of us who started you know who then got our PhDs who are coming in from high school musicals and all kinds of things like that and so i think that rather than think about the PhD as this kind of weird elevated space between our undergraduate selves and our under future undergraduate students we need to do a better job of thinking about who are we, who are we training and for what, and what is their relationship to to undergraduate uh, education, which had, tends to be heavily practice-based, even in, in programs that are also very rich in history and theory.
0: Yeah, I think in, in answer to your question, Harvey, I would say, like Sarah, that it, it's hard to argue that PhD students should be protected from slash forbidden from spending their time and creative energy uh, learning how to act direct design etc but it seems like there's a couple of different types of rationale one would be that if you're going to be a scholar and you're going to research the history of or the theory of or the present existence of performance, it's sure a good thing to have been in the space yourself to understand what a director does or what an actor does to to be in the rehearsal room, to be in the you know performance space itself. It just seems that if you don't have that experience, you have an incomplete knowledge of the thing that you're trying to study. And were there time and resources enough, then every PhD should also, you know, choose a specialty and and become trained as an actor or director or all these things. So there's just a kind of, I don't know what you would call that, a a kind of pedagogical justification for why PhD students should know their way around the the art form. And then there's the, the job market motivation, which Sarah mentions, this is one thing where I just don't, I wonder if the ground has shifted a little bit. And, and, you know, when I was a PhD student, I tried to get opportunities to direct at at Brown at that time. There was no explicit, you know, there was no requirement in the coursework that was practice oriented. And I, I guess I would say that, you know, PhD student involvement in departmental productions and student productions was tolerated, but not encouraged because you I think we're all familiar with situations in which a PhD student is directing or acting or designing, and they just their, their coursework suffers. What I told myself at that time was, "Well, I'm going to go in the market. I want to be able to say I can direct a, a play in the season. That'll be a valuable skill." But I don't know that that helped me on the job market. I, I have a feeling that, in a way, that might be a residual way of thinking from a time when the theater professor was, you know, more often than not, the English professor who taught Shakespeare and directed the plays now with the job market dynamics being what they are with there being so many you know people trained in directing and acting um and design through mfa programs many departments you know there's a kind of separation between the production of the season and the you know discursive research so i don't know that that i don't i don't know to what extent there's a job market rationale for it. I don't, I'm not aware, I mean, you know, Harvey, you'd probably be in a better position to answer this, um, training PhD students. I don't know that students go out on the market and they're up for a job and they really need someone to direct the department productions and they don't have that training. Do you think it's a job qualification issue? It's It's a good question. There are a number of jobs
2: out there, and this could be just a consequence of, of not necessarily a movement toward generalists, but a desire for people to multitask, uh, where there's a request for a person to be able to teach theater history, but also maybe uh, offer a class in acting or a class in directing, right? So it's a way of trying to get one person to do more than one thing, right? Uh, One of the questions I think that we have to have, uh, one one, one of the questions we need to answer rather within our programs is what is the uh, intended Uh, benefit of practice-based training, right? So is it to make a person more informed scholar by understanding how a play lives and breathes once it's on its feet, right? Um, And therefore, you can engage with it at that level. Uh, Or is it um, to prepare a person to be able to identify as a director or uh, as a uh, teacher of acting, right? And, And I think those are two very different things.
1: Well, and, and I would add to that, I think there's also a dimension that has not been as robust in the U.S. as it has been in the U.K., uh, Europe, and elsewhere, but is the whole question of, of practice-based research uh, and and questions of performance as research, which you alluded to in the opening uh, panel about, uh, you know, what's going on at University of Washington. And you know, this has been highly contested. There are people who love it, there are people who hate it uh, as a notion. but uh, but certainly that seems to me to be the kind of third third dimension here. My sense is that, again, there are lots of different kinds of jobs, um, but we do see a tendency towards uh, combining, and it, again, it depends on the institution. The larger the institution, the more specialized everybody can become. The smaller the institution, and, and I think as departments lose tenure lines, for example, in, in, you know, funding crises, which we, you know, may be on the verge of again, you're going to see some of the same kind of, you know, hybridized job descriptions where they want someone who could teach theater history, acting, um, you know, and scene painting, you know, I mean, every once in a while you get these <laughs> kinds of, um, and, and just in case you laugh, you know, I'll just say that my first job, which I was really grateful to get, and I, and I loved and I learned a lot from, was in an English department Uh, the theater was in the English department um, and I taught basic acting theater history uh, theater theory and children's theater um. Wow. Uh. In my in my in my first first year. So you know, it was great that I had been raised by a puppeteer and had written a book about you know uh, a literary modernist. Um. But you know, it was like it was kind of a grab bag of stuff. You know.
0: Uh, um. So we're gonna have to subtitle this episode "Raised by a Puppeteer." I did not know that, Sarah. We're gonna ha- we're gonna have to get into oh, that. Oh yes. Well, after have to do a shout out
1: to to Richard Bay, Richard Bay Puppets of Sacramento, California. The Oh, wow. The man with the fuzzy fuzzy people who raised me. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Explains Fantastic. a lot about my personality, I know. Thank you.
2: <laughs> I, I, I do think that when we talk about graduate-level training uh, in the area of directing uh, or teaching acting, we want to make sure that uh, there's a full complement of, of courses uh, that uh, are made available to students because we don't want a person to take let's say one introduction to directing class as a graduate student and then to go on the market uh, as self-identifying as a director you know, who then directs on the main stage at a university and then even worse teaches uh, others how to direct after only taking one class right so i think yeah. that's something that we need to be careful uh, as we are mindful of trying to get uh, our phd students through a program in a fairly timely manner right uh, and being um, attentive to their uh, scholarly development we also make sure that we're giving them the tools to succeed uh, and making sure that they have enough time in the classroom uh, and the labs as well to develop as directors or as teachers of
0: actors right yeah i think a sort of sub question of this issue is whether or not you know, PhD students, if they want to audition for shows in the season, are allowed to do that. You know, I think the directing mold, the, that's that's a skill where you can say, okay, you know, you may be up for a job where they want, they need a director to go into the rotation for the season. You know, often students, and we get this with our MA students, and I think it's must be universal. Um, we have MA students, and they want to be on stage, and they want to perform. It's very hard to say you know, no, that's not what you're here to do because you're here to learn about performance at an advanced level. And I think everyone acknowledges that you're, you become more sophisticated, you become more knowledgeable, and that it's just worthwhile to, to perform on stage. But then you get these, you know, crises of deadlines and, and you know, problems where people are overcommitted. Um, it would be interesting to do a survey of PhD programs and find where uh, there was an explicit or just understood prohibition about auditioning. Amongst PhD, yeah, it, PhD students, it's a
2: question, and it, and Sarah, this goes back to what Sarah was saying uh, at, at the top of this segment. People often begin uh, and are interested in theater uh, through their identity as actors, right? And then they enter PhD programs, and they're often discouraged from uh, you know from pursuing acting, uh, whether on campus or off campus, right? You know, so that when practice options are available to them, it's often dramaturgy or directing, but not often acting. Uh, so then, you have a person applying for a job, and you know they they still somewhat identify as an actor. But when you look at their CV, you know their their last credit is the senior year college show, and they are now six years or old, six years or even older than six years older than that moment, right? So I think that's something we want to be mindful of.
1: I wonder if there isn't also a, a similarity to to one's to non-native language study. Right. I mean, in the in the and the question of you know, in, in much the same way as not every program should be the same, not every student should pursue the same collection of courses. For some projects, knowledge of a second, third, even fourth research language is really critical and essential. I wonder, you know, can we think about this in terms of for some kinds of projects, different kinds of practice and and critical arts practices are are more or less essential than others. You know, so if you're doing one kind of you know historical work maybe acting in that period is uh, an essential part of it and you really should be spending the kind of time working on acting that you would working on you know uh, you know German for example for for a different kind of project
0: finally on today's podcast, we want to talk about Hamilton and scholarly criticism of Hamilton. The hit show of last year is remaking the cultural fabric, bringing in fans to the musical genre, as uh, President Obama mentioned earlier this week. And uh, scholars in the field of theater and performance studies have begun to write about some of the limitations of this play. So, James McMaster wrote an article in HowlRound touching on a number of topics in which the the play seems to come short, specifically around issues of gender and the way the immigrant narrative is is constructed. Stacey Wolf, most recently posted a a, a long uh, and really great essay on uh, uh, feministspectator.com, or actually I think it's now feministspectator.princeton.edu, addressing many of the same concerns, but especially the the question of the the female characters. And Shane Vogel and Scott Herring have proposed an MLA, panel on sexuality, and uh, I believe that language is uh, non-normative sexual desire in the way we understand the founding fathers, and specifically Hamilton becomes the the locus point for that discussion. So this, I think, is a really interesting topic. For one, I mean, it allows us to talk about Hamilton, which I will confess I am a bit of a fanboy fanboy. Um, I will also confess that I have not seen the play, and so, um, like a lot of people, I know Hamilton through the original cast recording. Um, Harvey, Sarah, have either of you seen Hamilton or just listened to it?
1: I've just listened to it.
0: Yep. Same here. Okay. Okay. Great. So this will be. We, you I am know, plotting
1: ha- my my trip, but it's yes. you, you know I have not yet been able to secure yes. the fifteen hundred dollars required to get four people yes. into seats there. Yes, and and
0: I'll, you know, be buying, buying tickets to Chicago to see the Chicago production. That's probably going to be my first opportunity to see it. So, that one's everyone sold listening, out. wait, it's it's already hard to get tickets yes. to. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Um, Unless you subscribe anyways. to the season. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, everyone listening should keep in mind that we have not seen the play. Um But like but all good the theater not,
1: scholars, right, we're just going to talk about it anyway.
0: Oh yeah, this does not prevent me from having extremely strong opinions about it. <laughs> so, so I've surveyed the reading, and I've talked, and you know, I, I imagine that like you guys, I've you know talked to people who know the show or who have seen the show and have you know reactions along the lines as well. But it it seems to me that at this point there are three main lines of criticism of Hamilton. The first being. Uh, that the female characters are rather thinly written that they pretty much react to Hamilton and his genius and his problems. um, And that Eliza and Angelica, um, who were the two largest, most interesting female roles are really sort of put into the position of the good wife and that there's just a an unfortunate result uh, in terms of gender politics. Second, there is this heroic tale of an immigrant who, by dint of his unusual intelligence and his intense work ethic, brought himself out of poverty and squalor. The criticism here is that this supports a neoliberal and conservative set of presumptions that are used to deny aid and basic services to poor people and immigrants, right? That if you work hard enough and you're exceptionally talented, then, you know, you can rise up out of, um, out of poverty. And that's, you know, that's where our energies should be directed. Um, and there's another line of criticism, and this I have not seen written about yet, but from people who have read the um, Ron Chernow biography, I understand that in that biography, you learned that there was a basically a, a queer relationship between Hamilton and John Lawrence um, that was, you know, part of the source material that Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, drew from, but that is very much scrubbed out of the of the play itself. And again, I think you would have to see the play rather than just hear it to confirm that there's not a kind of space for same-sex desire um, in the play. But certainly in listening to it, that seems to have been erased. And so these seem to be the three sort of main thrusts of criticism. Um, I have my Hamilton hobby horse that I am all too ready to jump onto, but I thought I would ask you guys first what you think of, of these critiques and are there others that people have yet to turn their attention to?
1: Well, I'll simply say that uh, my knowledge of the production comes in part from reading, but also I have a a seminar this semester um, in which a few of my students have seen the show. Um, One of them more than once, I believe. And one of my students had read the biography before she went to see it, and she felt like the, the queerness was in the performance so that there are long moments of holding hands, looking deeply into eyes, that there's a kind of coded uh, homosexuality, homosociality that is visible within the performance that doesn't show up on the soundtrack. But her boyfriend, who had not read the biography prior to seeing the show, looked and saw none of this in the performance, which seems to me, uh, if true, if, if if Sophie's account is accurate, uh, then I would say that seems very much in keeping with um, somewhat of what Chernow describes, right, which is a kind of coded, layered expression of of queerness uh, of the period. Although, once you kind of get into what he discovers in the letters, I think a lot of that coding goes away, so uh, and becomes much more overt, if not demonstrative, um, in the extreme. So, I simply offer that as a as another facet to think about in this context.
0: That's interesting. I that is one. A topic that I, I I need to read the biography now because it's it'll be interesting to know to what extent it was a real choice to just not tell that story about Hamilton and, and Lawrence.
2: Yeah, my sense of the criticism is that uh, uh, that the authors and here I'm thinking specifically of Stacy Wolf uh, actually like loved the production, right? Uh, and 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 Stacy's blog posting in the Feminist Spectator uh, as critic and if, if in a Spectator she's uh, quite clear that. Uh, she loved the production. She was impressed by the way in which audiences uh, responded, you know, sort of positively to, to, to the production, but also how diverse the audience was. And it's one of those things where she, you know, confesses that even in the midst of of this celebration of the material and this joy uh, with the presentation, um, that there is this lingering concern uh, around the construction of, of, of female characters, right? Uh, to which uh, Miranda has responded, sort of not directly to Wolf, but in general to say that, well, uh, he has removed any restrictions in terms of performance choices that will occur uh, into the future around casting, such as having um, a female actress play Hamilton, for example. You know, but I think that there's a question in terms of, you know, what is embedded within the uh, the musical itself, and then what are you leaving to others to uh, shift
0: and change on their own? Absolutely. It, um, opening it up to cross gender casting doesn't change the way the female characters are written I think you're you're totally right that there is this theme in the critical essays which is almost apologizing for having to criticize Hamilton and to say this play is amazing and progressive on so many fronts and one doesn't want to be a scold or to be a killjoy but there are things that have to be talked about in here. And so I think, you know, in in responding to some of these criticisms, it's important to note that people are not arguing you know that this play is bad for the world, and there's there's actually, but there's you know there's nuances to this. I have talked to a, a friend of mine who's seen the play a couple of times. Her take on it is not that it's a sort of you know heroic narrative centering around a man, and that the female characters don't um, have a lot to do, but that they're the way that the play ends with uh, you know Eliza talking about Hamilton's legacy and reinscribing herself in the narrative. It seems blatantly compensatory, and and there are you know signals in the play that that Miranda is self-aware about having these female characters that aren't satisfying, but that the way that she you know has that big last moment on stage um, seems to be you know unsatisfying. That she would rather that that was that the female characters were just marginal, and that the play was just a Hamilton story, and that there wasn't an attempt to sort of recuperate a loss, gender equality, by focusing on the fact that Eliza then spends the rest of her life defending his name and, and trumpeting his legacy, that that seems, you know, uniquely unsatisfying on its own Can
1: I ask a, a question about this? Uh, and, and just to kind of push push back a little bit um, about kind of how you began this with the the apology, right, the po- apologizing, which I, I agree that that's the framing. Is it more difficult or... Mm, potentially worse for an ostensibly progressive uh piece of work to marginalize women in in this way precisely because it engenders a kind of criticism that almost uh hesitates in its i mean if if this were a diff had a different ideology behind it would we be so so careful about marking its choices and and these are choices you know and the fact of you know like I mean, whether it's encoded or, or or not, the fact of of Hamilton's you know perceived queerness is not readily legible, um, and it's certainly not central. Uh, the women are clearly marginalized, regardless of whatever compensatory things and It seems to me that that those moves are almost more dangerous when they happen within otherwise progressive narratives and progressive stories precisely because they also mute the the critical response and we see that in the kind of hesitation um you know is in a way that other works just you know we we sort of have have at it you know in a much more blatant way
0: i think that's a fair criticism that this is a play that um I mean, people respond so positively to it for, well, reasons that I will want to get into when I'm getting to my thesis. <laughs> but but yeah, the fact that the play is self-aware, that it's conscious of the politics of representation, um, specifically in terms of race, um, and then clearly aware of what it's doing with, the, with gender, um, but not either committing to a fully masculinist story nor creating a a queer or or feminist um, correction to the record or um, sort of revisionist history of it. In a way, it, there's a performance of an argument which is you can only have so much progressive representation in one piece that uh, will succeed, and so if we're going to have a play that is that remakes the way we think of the images of the founding fathers in terms of race and and national background, then we're going to have to save our feminism for something else. So you know, go see Fun Home, but also go see Hamilton, and you know, let's don't try to ask too much. I mean, I think that's ultimately the logic that supporters of Hamilton are are forced to adopt. Well, I, I also think that there's a way in which
2: works or productions that build themselves as being inclusive, uh, often find a way to exclude, like large groups of people, right? Uh, and, and and this is perhaps one of the challenges with Hamilton, which I've not seen, uh, but I've certainly had my experience going to a number of plays where, you know, it's billed as this sort of wonderful moment that everyone's involved, and then someone will say something that just alienates, like, you know, you know some small minority, but still very important individuals, <laughs> right, you know, like who are in the audience, you know, so I think that's kind of part of the challenge with this is that that these choices often leave people out right um, and it's even more frustrating when you when the politics are clear when the effort to be inclusive is clear um, when the desire to challenge the status quo is made quite apparent and even with all that framing uh, there's still this sense of wow you know this is a reductive conservative limiting uh, approach in this area right so I think that becomes the problem. It's also the problem, I think, in general, when we talk about sort of international uh, intersectional politics, these um, are sort of being expressed through performance. Uh, it's that sense that in the effort to in- include, uh, you become hyper aware of who you're excluding, whose voices are being left out, right? Uh, and I think that that is what is allowing for these critiques to emerge justifiably. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm reminded mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Gertrude Stein's uh, American history pageant, right, the mother of us all, and the the whole explicit debate about who would get the vote first, the black man or the white woman, and mm-hmm. and this comes up uh, uh, again and again. And I think in some ways the tension that Hamilton, in, you know, embodies, if not addresses explicitly, is also very much worked into a kind of fabric of American. Uh, identity and, and precisely, you know what Harvey says about this notion of intersectionality and the way that it manifests on stage. Um, so, if you're interested, I would really recommend going back and reading, you know, like the latter third of yeah. of Stein's, you know, uh, her own kind of musical attempt uh, at the time. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I think I think that is very much on point. It sort of rehearses a familiar pattern in American history, you know, in terms of. Uh, which segment of the population was enfranchised first? Uh, you know, black men or women in general. One thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of the um, these criticisms, and I want to be careful that I don't seem to be saying that I reject the feminist criticism or the, the the other lines of criticism having to do with the way an individualistic striving narrative is validated. But I will say this: that I haven't, I have not seen in criticisms of Hamilton acknowledgement of what I think are pretty clear facts about why the play works as well as it does. Ultimately, this argument will reduce down to a sort of classic argument about how how progressive can you be and still have a smash hit that actually begins to remake the cultural fabric. So in a way, these arguments are not new. But in my mind, having listened to the soundtrack dozens of times, you know, one of the things that I think is historically specific about the success of this play is that it merges what would otherwise be a kind of middle brow musical about the life of a founding father that you never thought to research with rap and and hip-hop music which becomes a major part of pop music in the 1990s and and the early 2000s and the seamlessness of that merger the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda has made Hamilton hip-hop and those are his own terms that's the thing that makes this play. I think it's part of why it resonates so strongly with certain audience members. It's brilliant in the way that he makes the American Revolution into a sort of hip hop narrative. But along with that comes a lot of the problems with rap music. So it's hyper, you know, the play is hyper masculine. There's a kind of easy, you know, misogyny, a striving narrative about coming from humble beginnings and making it making it super big through the force of your own determination and talent. There's a, you know, an intolerance to the possibility of same-sex desire. And I'm generalizing heavily here, but I think a lot of people would agree that in, you know, rap music, many of those qualities are still there. And so if you're creating this alloy of popular musical theater and rap, if you start to introduce these more, you know, feminist elements or queer elements, you begin to tamper with the chemistry, arguably, and you begin to make it a, you know less of a potent drug for spectators when you alter that recipe. The other thing I would say is that I think you know, in the same way that we'll look back and see *Angels in America* as the the theatrical expression of the Reagan years and that cultural moment that Hamilton is very much about it very much fits at the end of the Obama administration and I think part of the reason for that is that for certain audience members um, we have Obama feelings that have to do with his biography and there's a lot of intersection between what I think we understand as being Obama's narrative and the Hamilton narrative as it's told by Lin-Manuel Miranda so if you were an Obama supporter and you felt powerful feelings about uh, a you know biracial young man who didn't have a relationship with his father but through his incredible talent and discipline and hard work became the president of the united states there's that's a structure of feeling that is familiar to us, and I think that Part of the success of Hamilton is that it taps right into those feelings. And the pleasure of seeing a founding father's narrative with actors in every shade of brown is partly super pleasurable because we have these leftover sentiments about the Obama years. And so if you have less of a sort of individualistic striving exceptionalism in that narrative, perhaps you don't get to feel that pleasure in quite the same way. There's a lot to
2: respond to there that that you (laughs) offered. Uh, I'll just say that I'm not sure if I agree with your assessment of rap. Um, And I do think that we're in this moment of of the sort of the popular um, embrace of the potential of rap music to uh, engage an array of politics, right? So we're in a moment where Common has an Oscar, right? You know, we're in the moment where... Um, you know, although problematic, you know, sort of what Macklemore has done, for example, but uh, in terms of actually uh, encouraging a conversation around um, uh, sort of same sex relationships and homosociality. Uh, And I also think that looking at the work that Kendrick Lamar has done, for example, in the area of looking at assault and abuses around black bodies specifically, you know, so I I do think we're in this wonderful moment where uh, from many different perspectives, um, sort of rap music is is demonstrating its ability to engage um, an array of politics uh, that uh, differs from uh, and actually moves beyond some of the limitations that were assigned to it uh, by previous generations.
1: I think it's also important to I, remember uh, that that the history of of rap and hip hop was not exclusively in one kind of you know political or ideological vein. I mean, so like Public Enemy uh, and and other very left wing radical groups were there from the beginning. Um, I would also point contemporarily to, you know, Beyonce. And I think the, you know, the information and the debate around both the video and the Super Bowl performance is a really uh, important kind of counter narrative. I also question, I want to kind of go back to your first point, panel. I also really question this notion that there's like an inclusivity limit. And I think I'm badly misphrasing you here. So let me, you know sort of posit this. I, and I they, think that's the right way but to But this idea that there's an inclusivity it, yeah. limit to, to commercial success, and I think that this, is a, this has been a pervasive and uh, an enduring yeah. myth that has worked to keep numerous people out of numerous opportunities. And I think we, we, yeah. we perpetuate it uh, at our collective peril.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't want to, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that that's what I believe. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to make decisions about what shows to produce and what not to produce, but I think there is a sort of economic logic or set of presumptions, which is that if you're too groundbreaking and too inclusive, you're going to turn off part of the audience. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying I espouse that belief, but I think there, I think that you could sort of see that as a way of defending uh, Hamilton, um, almost at Hamlet there. You know, the um, other, the other piece of that,
1: though, too, that kind of goes yeah. back to the other thing that you were saying as Hamilton is a response to Obama I think also yeah. uh, uh, treats Obama and his presidency and the reception of it as a little bit too much of an of a origin point. I mean, Obama is successful pre- precisely because he taps into the n- same kind of narrative and the same beliefs that Hamilton taps into, right? And so what we're really talking about <laughs> is a, a centuries old belief structure in what American identity is and the performance of it. Yeah. And so Obama's successful as a politician in many ways because he figured out how to adapt what people already believed was true about themselves and about their country and to establish a spot within yeah. it. And Hamilton, of course, does the does very much the same thing. I wonder how much the idea of Hamilton response to Obama you know, you made the, the analogy of of Angels in America to Reagan and I I wonder what it what it what changes when the when the response is an affirming um, mm-hmm. arguably an even reifying one as opposed to a deeply critical oppositional mm-hmm. one to its time like what does you know does this does yeah. theater do something different when it's opposing its contemporary moment and the dominant powers within it as opposed to celebrating and 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 um, and holding them up as ideal in some way
0: yeah absolutely i think you know in a way the the audiences are for the plays are comparable um, you know um, I think Stacey Wolf talked about the diversity of the audience that she saw at Hamilton but it was not I, in other accounts, the audiences are very white. And I think that um, white liberals are a big part of those audiences um, and in a way that plays both capture certain elements of the feelings that, um, you know, I don't mean to say exclusively white people, but that um, liberal cosmopolitan audiences felt about. Well, and we could probably say exclusively, um,
1: you know, like wealthy people. Right. I mean, there's Certainly like, the, you point. know, like, there's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. you know, except for the kids yeah. Yeah. Right, who are getting to go see it as part of like, you know, the yeah. organized school trips in New York City. You know, most these are not, yeah. uh, you know, uh, affordable tickets.
0: Yeah. I want to respond to a couple of points that you guys made. Um, one, uh, Sarah, about the question, you know, the the question of the extent to which. Obama's presidency is already activating a set of affective structures and predilections that are deeply American. I think that that's true, but I think it's I still think that it is part of the distinct pleasure of being a spectator or a listener for Hamilton that you get to see, you know, a polychromatic cast embodying this founding fathers narrative which allows you to kind of fuse one's own, you know, multicultural utopian wishes with whatever national or patriotic feelings have been deeply ingrained with you for a long time. Um, and I think that that's something that comes out of a post-Obama moment, you know, in a way that's really powerful. And then I do want to talk about the rap criticism, because I think it's true that we shouldn't say... Hamilton is sexist because rap is sexist. There's so many important exceptions to that statement. But if you look at the specific vernacular that Miranda is reactivating and the, there's, you know, dozens of artists that he's talking about, but, um, Mobb Deep, Nas, Jay-Z, Eminem, these are sort of particularly strong influences. And a lot of that stuff is deeply sexist homophobic certainly individualistic and violent you know i think that part of the problem with hamilton is that it's effective partly because it is tapping into feelings that are you know rooted in some of the less uh savory aspects of of hip-hop music any final or parting thoughts on on hamilton
2: well i'll I'll say one thing i do think that um There is a way in which the White House's embrace of Hamilton does lend itself toward making more and more comparisons, right? Um, So that when you have Michelle Obama saying she's seen the show a couple times when the performers are invited into the White House to perform um, Hamilton itself, you know, then that uh, just demands, you know, a. desire or or, or calls upon people to uh, create that association. And, And I don't know what the association is. I don't know if it's a case where for much of the first part of Obama's presidency, there was an effort to render him occupying the office of president and also Michelle Obama occupying the position of first lady, uh, you know, to, to render those both legitimate in everyone's eyes, right? So there's a lot of effort, right, as we recall going back seven years ago in terms of, you know, what is the look of the first lady? What is the look and sound of, the, of a president? Uh, and I think that we're beyond that moment now. Uh, and perhaps this sort of recognizes that, um, you know, the wide embrace of a play like, of a musical like Hamilton could you know, accept the sense that anyone can play or occupy
0: any role. So, should we move on to drafts? Yeah. Drafts. Finally, on the podcast, uh, we have this segment we call drafts. These are things we're thinking about. Perhaps they're not fully formed. Um, so, please pull up a stool, join us at the bar and have a draft. Uh, Sarah, what are you thinking about these days? Well,
1: this kind of plays off of uh, topics we've been addressing here already, but uh, I am struck less by the sort of comparison of Hamilton to Obama, though uh, that's obviously there, but more by the simultaneity of Hamilton's success and the rise of Donald J. Trump uh, as a political performance par excellence. And so, for those of you who, like me, are um, marveling uh, at the overt theatricality of the contemporary race, I just wanted to sort of draw attention to two two things that I'm using to to frame this and talk about it with my students. One is this uh, the wonderful footnote in um, the work of art to the age of in the age of mechanical reproduction uh, by Benjamin footnote 12 where he talks about uh bourgeois democracies in crisis uh because of recording and broadcast technologies and the rise of Mm -hmm. the dictator slash actor and how the these two like it's it's his one kind of like ambivalent uh compensation to the all the wonderful things that uh mechanical reproduction is bringing with the destruction of aura um, and it, it really reads uh, really profoundly, and I'll, I'll simply read the last sentence of, of footnote number 12 from that essay, which is the that the trend is toward establishing controllable and transferable skills under certain social conditions. This results in a new selection, a selection before the equipment from which the star and the dictator emerge victorious. Uh, so I find this really compelling. And I'll just sort of say, as another side note, um, that I've been really enjoying rereading um, Timothy Raphael's The President Electric, Ronald Reagan and the Politics of Performance. Um, And this is University of Michigan Press uh, from 2009. Uh, And Raphael uh, refers to the uh, the Benjamin quote, um, but in a a larger context. And I think just does a marvelous job of conceptually situating uh, Reagan in a way that makes the contemporary experience uh, of of Trump uh, really salient in my mind. So that's kind of, that's one of the things I'm playing with.
0: Fantastic, thank you, Sarah. Harvey, what's
2: on your mind these days? I am thinking about book awards. Uh, and the reason for that is I'm, every so often I find myself on a judging panel uh, for like, trying to find, identify the best book in American theater or the best book in theater or the best book in performance studies readings of suburban Chicago I don't know (laughs) yeah so I'm on a lot of these committees and part of it is as I'm looking at this stack of books that I I need to read uh, over the next few months uh, is trying to figure out what we look for in a best book and even why we even have these best book awards Uh, I've spent a few years now lobbying for us to move away from having a single best book to identifying like notable books or, I don't know, important things for people to read, you know, similar to the New York Times where it's not just one, it's often a list of titles. Yeah. Uh, realizing that that has a greater utility for the field and also for individual scholars. Uh, but time and time again, there's always a level of resistance. Uh, within these committees that there has to be one winner, only one winner, uh, and there's a discouragement around honorable mentions and there's and there's really a discouragement from
0: the idea of a slate of books that you're encouraging people to read. So that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I'm on one of those committees now and it's it is super hard to compare the merits of books that are that come from different parts of a field as polyglot as ours. So i I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Of course it would be difficult to segment the field and talk about which is You know most valuable from what different area but I think what you're talking about is you know sort of short lists of uh outstanding work that people should know about yeah um my draft uh is I had two options one is a ridiculous one and one is a more intellectually oriented one uh which one's which one do you guys want to hear
1: oh I think I think this 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 discussion has got got really dark really fast uh, at the end there so I think go with the go with the silly one there panel
0: I'll I agree. Go with the, I agree. I'll go with the ridiculous one. <laughs> um, so yeah, a few weeks ago I was on campus and you know, I've got two small kids and time is super hard to find. And I found myself on campus, you know, dressed and having, you know, I think we had like a, a colloquium talk or a job talk um, later in the day. And I just looked like such a mess. I hadn't shaved. I was like, uh, I looked terrible. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I, realized that I could go down to the bookstore which is in our building buy a razor and then take it to the dressing rooms and clean up which may this may be something you guys have already done in your lives but the unique resources that exist in theater and performance building department buildings are kind of amazing you know as a sort of i don't know subtopic of the history of the field someday someone should write about the way that the the theater production uh, resources of a theater department allow the academic side to to do certain things that would be more difficult otherwise. So this is a project. This I'll write this you know article or or book when I'm in my 70s, I guess.
1: I will look forward to that panel. I'll, <laughs>
0: all right. we will nominate you um, for a best what, book
1: of the year award Would you write that book
0: no just just a just a book worth reading just a book worth reading all right um let's wrap it up there on tap is produced with the support of the performing arts department at washington university in st louis and the master's program in theater and performance studies mary ellen vander hayden produces the program you can find us on the web at www.ontap Find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter, at On Tap Podcast.